Well, good evening. So good to see each and every one of you tonight. I'm glad to have this opportunity in the middle of the week to come together with you and to conclude our study in Jeremiah. Uh, in just a few moments, we'll have a word of prayer, but I uh, wanted, to, wanted to make a couple of things known. Uh, one is a reminder from uh, Jason and Matt that the Bible class material, so this is the Bible class material for uh, the children's ages, I believe that goes up through middle school. Um, that material is available uh, out at Matt's car afterward. So if you're here tonight and you'd like to pick up that material uh, to help you with your home study, uh, please be sure to see Jason, see Matt, and get that material out of his car afterward. Uh, we have lots of individuals that we need to remember in our prayers. Uh, we have cause to weep with those that weep, to try to encourage those that are mourning the loss of loved ones, uh, but we also have some, some cause for rejoicing. Uh, many of you know that Jonathan and Rachel Reeves have been going through the adoption process, and uh, they had a little girl that was born, uh, I believe Lori May Lee, Lori May Lee. Uh, I know there's still some more things that need to be done, but Jonathan said it was okay to go ahead and announce that. Um, so we're, we're excited for them, hope that God's will will be done throughout that process. It sounds like they're going to be out there for uh, a little bit longer as the baby's still in the NICU, but it sounds like everything's going good uh, with, with that, that little child. So we're, we're excited for that. Um, if you would, please bow your heads and we'll pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a great and an awesome God. You are a kind and a merciful and a gracious God. We see your blessings poured out upon us each and every day. And Father, we give you all honor and glory and praise. We recognize, Father, that everything we see was created by you. You are incomparable. You, Father, are the sovereign king above all. Father, we ask that as we go throughout our study tonight, that we would be impressed with your power and your might. We would recognize that there are no other gods. You are the only one true God, and that you are the one that causes nations to rise. You are the one that also causes nations to fall. And we pray, Father, that we would recognize this fact, recognize that we have no power in and of ourselves. We ask that we would come before you in humble obedience to do your will, and that we would recognize that as your will is carried out, it is what's best for us. Father, we have many of our members that are on our hearts and our minds right now. Think especially about the Johnson family, as they are mourning the loss of Brother Jim. We pray for peace for that family. We pray that you can use us to lift up and encourage them. We pray for those that are sick. We pray for Bill Souder and his family. We pray for those that are recovering from surgeries, for the Bledsoe's, for the Bruce Higdon, the Bowers. We pray for Sister Shirley. Father, we know there are many others that are dealing with the frailties of this flesh. And Father, we ask that you would use us to lift them up, to hold up their hands, to encourage them and to show them love. Pray, Father, for those that are away from us and for the many, Father, right now that are separated through a number of means. And we long, Father, for the day when we can be back together again and enjoy one another's company. But, Father, we also look forward to heaven for a time when there will be no more separation, no more separation of any kind, no more separation that this earth can bring. We look forward to that day, Father. We ask that our study and our worship would be pleasing unto you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's finish up our study. It's been a great quarter. I'll echo the comments that Matt made last week. 
Um, it's been a, uh, a very enjoyable quarter going through the study of Jeremiah with you. And we're going to be finishing tonight. Uh, we're going to be doing chapters uh, 50 and 51. Uh, there is one more chapter, 52. Uh, but Matt actually covered it a couple of weeks ago because it lined up with what he was talking about. It was a historical recap of some of the events. So we're going to be studying 50 and 51 tonight, all centered around the common theme of the destruction and the fall of Babylon, both the fall of the city of Babylon and also the nation of Babylon. Uh, so let's just do a little bit of thinking uh, about, about Babylon itself. We'll give you a little bit of a refresher. We've talked about Babylon all throughout the book of Jeremiah. But uh, here is here's a picture, uh, probably taken with an iPhone 4. looks a little fuzzy. Um, but this is, this is an artist's rendition of what this ancient Babylon would have looked like. And, and Babylon was an incredibly impressive nation. And we're talking about Neo-Babylon, so sometimes people would refer to the old Babylon back in the days of Hammurabi. We're talking about this Neo-Babylon. And this new Babylon really rose to prominence in 626 B.C. Uh, when the Chaldean Nabopolassar drove the Assyrians out of the city of Babylon. If you remember, the Assyrians were the ones that took Israel into captivity. A couple years later, in 612, he took their capital of Nineveh. The Assyrians were then completely defeated in 609. And then a few years later, the Babylonians won another major battle in Carchemish against the Egyptians. And that really kind of cemented them as the world power at the time. Uh, they, over the next 20 years or so, would only spread their empire throughout most of the Middle East. Uh, what we've been focusing on is how they've exercised control over Judah, uh, really going back to 606 all the way through the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. They exercised control over Judah, setting up kings, setting up these vassal states, taking taxes, and then eventually the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. As we kind of looked at that artist's rendition, the city of Babylon was, by all accounts, just absolutely incredible. Uh, the Hanging Gardens were one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, the city was there on the Euphrates, this mighty river. Uh, it had all of these citadels, these giant palaces for the princes. Um, it had these ziggurats that were temples. Uh, I, I read one thing that, that said there was something, uh, something like 53 temples, 53 different temples. Just this, this incredible testament to this power that, that really kind of came out of nowhere um, in, in a fairly short amount of time. But what's amazing is that just as quickly as they came, they would also fall. We have read throughout most of Jeremiah of, of Babylon being the instrument of God's will. Babylon is the sword. Babylon is the hammer. Babylon is the battle axe. Babylon is the nation that God is using to make his will known to all the surrounding nations. And Matt did a really good job talking about that last week as we looked at Edom and Moab, Tyre, Sidon, all of these other nations. They were going to be judged and they were going to be punished and Babylon was most often going to be the method with which they were punished. But yet, punishment was coming for Babylon as well. Judgment was coming for Babylon as well. And history tells us that it didn't take that long. In 539, Cyrus the Persian was going to come, and almost without a fight, he would take the city of Babylon. The Medes and the Persians would be growing over this period of time, and they would eventually grow to where they would be kind of on the east and on the north of the Babylonian Empire, and then they would overtake them. And then, finally, even though the city was left intact, Xerxes would then come in 478 and destroy the city. 
We're going to look at some of the prophecies tonight that talk about how Babylon would be uninhabited. So just think, that beautiful, beautiful city that was sitting on the Euphrates, that was probably the envy of the ancient world, with all of these beautiful temples and hanging gardens, it was going to be uninhabited. So this is Babylon today. Pretty uninhabited. It's laid in ruins, about 50 miles south of Baghdad. Baghdad doesn't appear to be a particularly nice place either. But this is what has come of this great world power, this testament to man's power. God's word is going to be fulfilled. But again, I want you to keep that context in your mind. Because as we enter into Jeremiah chapter 50, if we assume that Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51 are actually connected or written at about the same time, we have a little bit of a timestamp At the very end of 51, we know that this is in the fourth year of King Zedekiah. So we are actually around 594 B.C. This is 55 years before Cyrus is going to come and to destroy Babylon. Babylon is at its peak. Babylon has already won that decisive victory, the decisive victories against Assyria, who was the dominant world power, decisive victories against Egypt, who was the other world power. So this is at the peak or at the zenith of Babylon's influence in the Middle East. Think about that. These are the words, and this is the time frame that God is saying it's not going to last. It's hard to read those things and not think about our, our nation. I don't know if you would describe us at our peak or at our zenith, but the United States has been blessed beyond measure. We certainly have wonders of the modern world. We exert an incredible amount of influence on the geopolitical stage. And I can only imagine thinking about somebody coming and saying, 50 years from now, it'll be gone. You'll be taken over. 70 years from now, completely uninhabited. But yet that is the message that Jeremiah is bringing to the people and is bringing to Babylon. So keep those things in mind as we go throughout our study tonight. Uh, for additional context, you can look at Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapters 13 and 14 and 47 uh, particularly talk about the same thing. And also the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel's a wonderful book for kind of noting the rise and fall of that Babylonian empire. As Daniel is the one who is speaking directly to King Nebuchadnezzar. Trying to turn him back and to humble him. Then speaking directly to Belshazzar. Uh, Belshazzar, who was that co-regent with his father Nabonidus right before, 5, 538, 539, right before they would fall to the Medes and the Persians. And we'll talk about some of that tonight. Um, but I do want to bring out just this idea, and I think Matt did a great idea, of, uh, or a great job of touching on this last week. But it's easy to go throughout the Old Testament and really get tunnel vision, thinking about the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, God's covenant people. And when you back up for just a second, you realize that God actually spent a fair amount of time, at least time that was recorded to us, talking to the other nations. We know that he had expectations of the other nations. And not only did he have expectations, he had honest opportunities for those nations to repent and to come back to him. We mentioned just a minute ago about Assyria. I'm thinking about Jonah. As Jonah was sent to preach to, the, to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. You think about what happened there in Jonah. When Nineveh heard the words of Jonah, the words of God, what did they do? They repented. They repented, and the destruction that was coming upon them didn't happen. God relented. We think about actually Nebuchadnezzar. I mentioned that just a minute ago. We have these recorded interactions between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. 
And it seems, at least in some manner, Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself. Now, clearly that, that lesson didn't pass on to the rest of Babylon, but I just want to make that general point that God had expectations of these other nations. And God sent prophets to these other nations to communicate that to them, to let them know what his expectations were. Now, we don't have as clearly recorded for us as we do the covenant with God's people, what those expectations were, but clearly he had them. We know that some of the things we're going to talk about tonight um, are things that he expected them to do. He expected them not to rejoice over the destruction of other nations. He expected them not to be, un, uh, un, I guess, more cruel to these people. He had expectations of them, and punishment would come upon them if they did not humble themselves. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's jump into Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50, and again, just keep this in mind um, as we're reading through some of these verses, that we are about 55 years away from when this would happen. Yet God is going to speak through his prophet Jeremiah with great specificity about exactly what's going to happen to Babylon, both the city and the nation. What I want you to take from these first couple of verses, Jeremiah chapter 50, really there through uh, verses 1 through 10, is just the certainty with which some of these things are described. Uh, and I think that's, that's the, the mark of a true prophet, but also the mark of God speaking and not a man speaking. Uh, oftentimes when we, when we do things or when we make promises or when we make predictions, uh, we, we hedge, we hedge. We give ourselves a little bit of room for error. Um, I know at least in, in my world when I'm trying to talk to individuals about uh, investments and markets, I've got no clue where it's going. <laughs> and so we try to give ourselves this room. Well, I think it can do this, but it can also do this. You know, here's the risk on this side, but here's the risk on this side. We speak in generalities. There are no generalities here. Look with me in verse 2 of chapter 50. Declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim, do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken. Baal is shamed. Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated. Her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. It, it, it is spoken as if it has already happened. That is the certainty with which God is letting them know these events that are going to come to pass. It's already happened. Verse 2, say Babylon is taken, Bel is shamed, Merodach is broken in pieces. Well, that, that's not the case. Right now, those idols are, are standing tall in Babylon. But when God says it, it is as certain as if it has already happened. And so the prophet can speak here in the present tense. It's happened. It, it, it has happened, and this is exactly how it is going to happen. That's the certainty with which he speaks. Uh, the false gods, uh, Bel and Merodach, were the two primary idols of the Babylonians. These gods are going to be cast down and destroyed. Uh, they serve as proxies for the nation themselves, the nation that would worship them. They're going to be cast down and destroyed, and they are as powerless to stop God's will as the nation is. They have no power in and of themselves. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But these are the words that he is saying. And his, uh, his admonishment to the people is that given this fact, given this absolute fact, and this is now speaking to the people that are in captivity, given this fact, you need to be ready to go. You need to be ready to get out. Um, if, you go down to, if you go down to verse 5, they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it. And they say, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. We, 
we, we talked about this idea before, but there are two things that are running hand in hand. As Babylon is punished and is cast down, as that nation is destroyed, God's nation is going to be reunited with him. And we've talked about how kind of in, in synchrony, when the people would come back, as they were rebuilding Jerusalem, as they were rebuilding the walls, as they were rebuilding the temple, symbolically they were rebuilding their relationship with God. They were re-entering and reaffirming that covenant. They were the ones that had been preserved. They were the remnant. God has spared them. And he's talking about that now. As Babylon, the punisher, the battle axe, is going to be destroyed, his people will come back. And he is imploring and admonishing his people, be ready to come back. As you go down a little bit, uh, a little bit later, look in verse 8. Move from the midst of Babylon. Go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be like the rams before the flocks. So just kind of like the ram would be out in front leading the flocks. He said, you need to be the ones at the front of the line. Be ready. When the opportunity comes to get out of Babylon, be ready to get out. Because you need to come back to your land. You need to come back, not just to the land. You need to come back to me. Yes, God has sent them there into captivity. And that's what he told them. We spent a lot of the book of Jeremiah with him telling them, you need to submit to Babylon. You need to go into captivity because that is the method with which I'm going to protect you. That is the method with which I'm going to spare you so that in my time, I can bring you back. And we can enter once again into this relationship. Well, as we come to the next couple of verses, uh, when we come to verses 11 through 16, we're going to hit this principal sin. Why is Babylon being punished? You know, after all, you could say, listen, this is what God wanted, right? God's the one that spent the last, you know, however many chapters saying Babylon is going to be the one doing my will. Babylon is going to be the one destroying these nations. Babylon is going to be the one that's going to come and take away captive. But he says there in verse 11, because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage. Because you've grown fat like a heifer threshing grain and you bellow like bulls, your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert because of the wrath of the Lord. She shall not be inhabited. She shall be wholly desolate. So because of this idea of rejoicing, rejoicing in cruelty, rejoicing in the downfall of another nation. And this is something that we've seen. Uh, I think it mentions it specifically with Moab and with Edom. When their sister Judah was taken away, they rejoiced. They looked for opportunity. They looked for opportunity at the suffering of their sister Judah. And so this is the same charge that's being brought against Babylon, that they rejoiced in this cruelty. They rejoiced in this role of punishing and slaughtering. And when you think about the way that they treated God, it's hard not to think about that scene that we find in Daniel. When we come to Daniel uh, chapter 5, and you have Belshazzar there. And again, this is many years in. This is after Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this is right before Babylon is going to be overthrown. But you see Belshazzar there, this, this co-regent, this leader in Babylon, throwing a big party. And when he's throwing the big party, what does he want to use? He wants to bring out all of the items that they have taken from the temple. And they want to treat these holy things of God like they're common. And they want to rejoice over the fact that they feel that they are at the top of the world and that nothing can harm them. This lack of humility, this lack of acknowledgement of God as the one true sovereign is going to be their downfall. And this is the charge here. Um, I, Isaiah puts it really well. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 47. Isaiah 47 and in verse 6. I think he elaborates a little bit on this. 
And it said, I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and have given them into your hand. But you showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily. And you said, I shall be a lady forever. So you do not take these things to heart nor remember the latter end of them. So just kind of a specific thing there. But it talks about how they had, they had no humility. They had no care, no concern. But they rejoiced in this cruelty. Um, and again, I'll just note in verse 15 the certainty with which they talk about this destruction that's coming upon them. Verse 15 of Jeremiah chapter 50, shout against her all around. She has given her hand. Her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down, for it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. As she has done, so do to her. And you get the sense that the walls have essentially already fallen. It's already happened. That's how certain this is. We talked about this a minute ago, but in verses 17 through 20, we see this theme come up again. That hand in hand with the punishment of Babylon is the restoration and the preservation of Israel. If you look in those verses there, uh, let's start in verse 19. I will bring back Israel to his home. He shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. So here in the context, again, hand in hand with talking about the destruction of Babylon, we see also this theme of the nation of God's people coming back. And here coming back, and you get the, the, the word picture here, they're looking for sin, but there is none. And why is there none? Well, God has put it away. God has put their sin away. You're searching for the iniquity, but it's not there because it's been pardoned. Think about that phrase that God has scattered their sins as far as the east is from the west. Just as God is a righteous God and a just God, and he is going to pour out that justice upon his people, he is also a God that is full of grace and mercy and love. And here we see that element highlighted. That he says he is going to pardon the sins of the people. And he is going to pour out his grace and his mercy upon them. As we go on into this next section of verses, verses 21 through 32, we come back to the destruction of Babylon. And I think what's highlighted here is that no matter how mighty the nation is, and again, we're talking about the nation at the very top, the very top of the known world right now, they are nothing compared to God. Look in verse 23, how the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken, how Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I've laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you are not aware. You have been found and also caught because you contended against the Lord. Again, go back and read through some of those verses in Daniel. And Daniel does a good job of talking about the mindset of Nebuchadnezzar. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do when he walked out there among the gardens and he looked around at all the splendor of Babylon? Did he give glory to God? No, he said, look what I've done. Look what I have built. Look at this mighty nation. That's the pride of man. That when victory has been granted to say, look what I've done. Look what I have accomplished. No regard for God. And Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. And just as Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, eventually the entire nation of Babylon was also going to be humbled. Because they thought that they had accomplished everything themselves. At one point in time, they were the hammer. They were the hammer that struck all the other nations. But that hammer itself was going to be cut asunder. 
It's interesting to, to look at these, uh, these words in verse 24 about being trapped and not being aware. Um, again, this could just be the description of a haughty person, um, someone who has not taken heed. And again, if you don't take heed, you can stumble and fall. Uh, it could also be talking about the very manner in which Babylon is going to fall. Um, the way that history records it, the Euphrates was what Babylon took maybe the most pride in, this mighty river that provided protection all around for them. But yet when Cyrus came, he had his men dig these canals that diverted the Euphrates. It lowered the water level and allowed his army to just march right in where the water would have been. They were able to march right in. They didn't have to lay siege. They didn't have to break down the walls. They marched right in where the river would have gone. And they were able to take the city almost without a fight. Babylon thought they were safe and thought they were, they were secure. And so whether it's talking about the actual manner of Babylon's overthrow or just talking about that mindset, I think both apply. When we fail to give God the glory that is due him and when we fail to acknowledge our place in relation to God, to understand that he is the one that provides everything for us, he is the one that blesses us, anything that happens is happening according to his will. We have no power in and of ourselves to make anything happen. And most importantly, when it comes to our salvation, we have no power on our own to earn our own salvation, to get salvation and say, look what I've got, look what I've done. It's all dependent upon God. And we have to acknowledge that as such. But as, as our time's getting away from us, let's move on through the rest of chapter 50. Uh, verses 33 through verse 46. Uh, talk about this one that is described there in verse 34. Who is this one that is going to redeem the children of Israel? Who is this redeemer? Verse 34, their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. So you see here the Lord saying, I have, I have punished you. I have sent you away into captivity, but now I am on your side. I am your redeemer. I am the one that is going to buy you back. And the one that is going to buy you back is far mightier than the one who has you captive. The captor is nothing when compared to the Lord of hosts. Yes, Babylon may have a mighty army. But again, it's nothing compared to the Lord of hosts. The one who rules over the innumerable host. Who has no limit to his power. Verses 35 down through verse 38 describe all these elements of strength that Babylon can possibly lay claim to. And God says a sword is going to be against all of it. A sword against the waters. A sword against the Chaldeans. A sword against the mighty men. Against the horses. Anything that they think is a strength for them, God is going to take a sword to it. And he is going to be victorious. And then as we, as we come down into verses 39, we have echoed this idea that Babylon is going to be desolate. And this is also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 13 and in verse 20. But look with me in verse 39 of Jeremiah 50. Therefore the wild desert beasts shall dwell there with the jackals. The ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever. Nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, no one shall reside there, nor son of man shall dwell in it. Think about that picture that we put up of Babylon. It's a pile of rocks. You go from those beautiful, beautiful palaces and a wonder of the ancient world to a pile of rocks that's uninhabited. And God said that is what is going to happen. God is the one that prophesied it, and it would happen. Finally, in chapter 50, this fall of the once mighty Babylon, look with me in verse 46, is going to be a lesson to the other nations. This should be a wake-up call to them. They should realize by now that a pattern is playing out. 
But in verse 46, at the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth trembles and the cry is heard among the nations. Can you see why Babylon is used as a, as a byword in the New Testament and in Revelation for these earthly powers? Earthly powers that come up almost out of nowhere and seem to amass an unstoppable power. They give no glory whatsoever to God. They appear, again, to be unstoppable. But yet God says, they're going to fail. They're going to fail, and in my time, I'm going to bring something else that is going to destroy them. You think about Daniel's, uh, Daniel's prophecy there as he was interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And he had nation after nation after nation. One nation would follow another until there was that one kingdom that came. That one kingdom that would conquer them all and would last for eternity. And no other kingdom would come against it to shake it or to tear it down. That's what you should be seeing here. That's what these other nations should be learning from this. Is that as they see the Assyrians rise and the Assyrians fall. And the Babylonians rise and the Babylonians fall. So they will see the Persians rise and fall. And the Greeks rise and fall. And the Romans rise and fall. On and on and on. And what's the one constant throughout it all? God. God is the one constant throughout it all. And his kingdom is the one that is going to endure forever. As we go on into chapter 51, with the little bit of time that we have remaining, we're going to see very similar language all throughout chapter 51, just elaborating on these same ideas. The first couple of verses, destruction is promised for Babylon, but again, hand in hand with that destruction is deliverance for Israel. In that first verse, you may see uh, it says, against those who dwell, uh, the New King James Version says, Leb Kamai. Um, Leb Kamai, and then later on you see the word Shishak used for Babylon. Shishak's actually used prior in Jeremiah. It seems that these were just code words that the people would use when they were talking about Babylon. Uh, they don't need to speak in code words here, so it may just be a way of God saying, listen, I know, I know you. I know that you're talking about Babylon. I know the phrases that you use to describe your captors. And don't worry. I'm going to take care of them. I am going to punish them. This destroying wind that is mentioned in verse 1 is going to come against Babylon. Verses 7 through 10 really reminded me of some of the things that we see in Revelation. It also reminded me of some of the wording that we saw back in chapter 25 of Jeremiah, where it talks about how the nations were uh, you know, enraptured with Babylon to the point that they were almost drunk. Look in verse 7. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. So on the one hand, you have two different ideas. The idea that God is going to be pouring out from this cup his wrath, using Babylon as his instrument to do his will, but also that the nations readily accepted it. They gloried in the fact that this one nation was so powerful and mighty until they became deranged by it. They couldn't see straight anymore. They couldn't understand what was really going on. But Babylon is going to fall. And there's going to be no one there in verse 9 to heal her or to give her a bomb. But in verse 10, the Lord is going to reveal his righteousness. He, again, is the constant. He is the consistent one. He is the righteous one above all. What I think is interesting when you go to verses 11 through 14 is that not only does God prophesy his end. Again, anybody can make a prophecy. Anybody can say, well, there's going to come a time when this nation is going to fall. But God does it with specificity. God tells them, not only are you going to meet your end, but I'm going to tell you exactly who it's going to be. And again, this is 55 years prior to when this would happen. He says it's going to be not some other nation 
that you're, you're trying, you know, it's not going to be the Egyptians that you're fighting against off and on. It's going to be your allies. It's going to be the Medes. If I read the history correctly, Nebuchadnezzar, one of his wives was actually a Mede. He had married into this Median family to strengthen this alliance. But yet the Medes were going to turn on him, and they were going to join forces with the Persians. And so that when Cyrus would come through, you would actually see, as Daniel talks about, you would see rulers, Median rulers in Babylon. And God tells them here in verse 11, it's going to be the Medes. It's going to be these kings of the Medes that are going to be your downfall. Verse 11, his plan is against Babylon to destroy it because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. He is going to be found righteous. And again, it mentions in Daniel chapter 5 and in verse 28 that Darius the Mede is the one. When Belshazzar is killed, Darius the Mede is the one that is placed into power. These next couple of verses, verses 15 through 19, really highlight the power of God and the, the absolute powerless idols. Um, look with me real quickly there. Verse 15, these attributes of God. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out heaven with his understanding. Now compare that to these useless carved images. Verse 18, they are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. They're nothing. They're going to go away. Baal and Merodach and whoever else you want to put in there, Chemosh, all these idols are going to be nothing. But that's not the portion of Jacob. That's not the inheritance of Israel. The inheritance of Israel is the God that they have a covenant relationship with. And verse 19 says, he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. And again, who is it? It's the Lord of hosts. These next verses, verses 20 through 26, God is speaking to Babylon here, saying, you are the one that I'm using to execute my justice on all the nations. But yet this should be a warning for you. If I can use you to punish the other nations, you should realize that I can use other nations to punish you. And you should give me the honor and the glory. Uh, I, love the, I love the verse that is described uh, there, let's see, in verse 25. It says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. Who destroys all the earth, says the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. They shall not take from you a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation, but you shall be desolate forever. Not only am I going to take you from a mountain, and I'm going to roll you down into a little pile of rocks. These rocks are going to be so small, they're not going to be used for anything. There's not going to be a nice big solid rock that we can make uh, a, a, a corner piece out of. There's not going to be anything nice and smooth and sturdy that we can use as a foundation. You are going to be a pile of rubble. Isn't that incredible? And I couldn't help but think, again, going back to Daniel and that prophecy there when it talked about that rock that would destroy that image, and then that rock would grow into this mountain that would fill the whole world, and nothing would come against it. Which mountain do you want to be a part of? <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take the latter mountain. I'll take the one that can't be destroyed. Just, just, just incredible imagery there, and it should be a warning for Babylon. They should be able to see this. Again, the people should be able to see this. Whether you're part of God's covenant or not, you should be able to understand and see these nations rising and falling, but yet that's not the way that we think. We always think we're different. We see it happen to us, it happened to us and others all around, and we can't seem to get that lesson. That we're not immune to it. That God is the only constant. 
As he says, as you go down into verse 29, every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon. Babylon has no power to resist. If it is God's will, if it is God's purpose, it is going to be accomplished. Verses 34 and 35 really personify Israel. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. But thus says the Lord in verse 36, I will plead your case and I will take vengeance for you. God, again, is their redeemer. He is coming to their aid now. Yes, he has punished them, but he is going to be the one that is going to buy them back as he reestablishes that covenant relationship with them. As you go down through the next couple of verses, desolation is mentioned again. Uh, verse 42 really jumped out at me. Verse 42 says, The sea has come up over Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of its waves. I think about these, uh, these coalition armies. That, that's what you see in history, is that the Medes and the Persians and all these other individuals, what had once been the strength of Babylon, their ability to get this coalition of individuals together falls apart on them. And all these coalition nations basically come against them. And you get the picture here of just wave after wave crashing upon them. And that's how Babylon falls so quickly. What was once this great mighty nation, wave after wave beats upon it. And they're destroyed. And it says, as you come down to verse 43, her cities are a desolation, a dry land in a wilderness. Again, a land where no one dwells. This is not just going to be you know, hey, I'm going to take you down a peg. You should, you should get the sense by now that this is, this is utter destruction. I will punish Baal in Babylon, and I will bring out of his mouth what he has swallowed. So as Babylon was the one that swallowed these other nations, God is going to bring that out. The nations shall not stream to him anymore, and the wall of Babylon shall fall. So my people, again, going back to the people, verse 45, go out in the midst of her. When you get this opportunity, leave. As we come to the very end here, these last couple of verses, verses 51 down through about verse 53, you get the idea that regardless of Babylon's strength, that destruction is certain. And then verses 54 through verse 58, the destruction is going to be complete. As we've talked about, and it just goes on in, in different words to talk about this complete destruction, the plunder, verse 56, that's going to come against her. Her mighty men are going to be taken. Their bows are going to be broken. God is going to repay them for the violence that occurs. The last couple of verses, verses 59 through 64, as our time is getting away from us here, is, is giving us this setting. These words, as I mentioned, were given to an individual named Sariah. Sariah is a brother of Baruch, Baruch the scribe. And Sariah was a quartermaster, so he was the one that was in charge of supplies. And he was actually going to Babylon in the fourth year of Zedekiah. And so Jeremiah gives him all of these words and says, go. And read this to all the people. Read this to the Babylonians. Read this to the captives. And then once you've read it, you tie a rock around it and throw it into the Euphrates. And that's going to be a symbol to them. It's going to be a symbol that when you're done, it's going to be there. Babylon shall sink and not rise. So just like that rock is going to drag it all the way to the bottom and leave them there forever, that is the symbol that this is going to happen to Babylon. I know our, our time has, uh, has gone by pretty quickly. That was a lot of material to cover in a fairly short amount of time, but uh, I hope you've gotten some good information out of the study of Jeremiah. And as we read tonight, I hope that it's impressed upon you the difference between the kingdoms of, kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. And I'd like for us to think uh, by way of invitation tonight, 
just go back to this idea of the individual that thinks they have everything figured out. I think about Nebuchadnezzar, someone who is almost quite literally on top of the world. He is standing there looking all around, counting all of his accomplishments, and thinking that everything's fine. Think also of Belshazzar, having a feast, thinking that they're on top of the world, thinking that everything's fine. But what does James chapter 4 tell us? When we go to James chapter 4, we're told that we don't have those kind of certainties in this life. James chapter 4 and verse 14. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. As Belshazzar was sitting there feasting, as Nebuchadnezzar was out there in the garden thinking about how great and mighty he was, both were humbled almost immediately. Belshazzar was humbled in that he lost his life. Daniel came to him and Daniel read him and told him what that inscription meant. His life was going to be was going to be required of him, that he had been weighed and he had been balanced and he had been found wanting. Just think about that for one second. You have been weighed, you have been balanced, some versions say measured, and you have been found wanting. That's a scary phrase. It's a scary phrase to think about coming before God and having God evaluate you and say, Brian, I've weighed you, I've measured you, I've balanced you, and you've been found wanting. And you are not going to be able to enter into the eternity that's been provided for you. But that's the question and that's the situation that faces each and every one of us. We have to think about that. Am I wanting? Well, the good news is that we don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder if there's some arbitrary measurement out there that we don't know about. God tells us exactly how we are going to be weighed, exactly how we're going to be measured, and exactly how we are going to be balanced. And the scale is given to us right here in his word. God asks that in humility we understand who he is. That he is the creator of all the world. And that we submit our will to his and that we obey him. And that we follow his word. That we come to him and repent of the sin that is in our life. And he tells us exactly how we can do so. That we can come confessing. And being baptized and and repenting of our sins. He tells us exactly what we need to do. And I would ask as we wrap up our study tonight, if there's anybody here, if there's anybody here that, that feels that they are wanting, that looks at the standard of God's word, and they feel that they don't match up, please let us help you. Let us talk to you tonight. Let us study with you. Let us pray for you. Let us do anything so that you can go to heaven too. If there's anything we can do, please come while we stand and while we sing.